pray this morning that it would draw our hearts to you, that we would see in this text the ways that you have continued to teach the faith to your people, that you have anchored the gospel in your Son, and from there all of us have the call to follow. So help us see that more clearly as we see the season and Christ for who he is and what he's done more clearly. And I pray this through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've kind of pieced together a few things this Advent. I hope that you've tr- uh, tracked a little bit of this, especially as Stephen and I have gone through Second Timothy. We're, we're trying to stay on track for your benefit and for our benefit, and it, it just helps to kind of gel things, to help line them up. But this Advent, we're going from, last week we heard on prayer uh, from Romans, that we're, we're trying to go through this passage or through these, these Advent seasons to, to anchor our hearts in what Christmas means for the church, what it means for God's people, what it means for, for all of life. Now, I didn't intend for this to be an Advent sermon, as it would happen, the way that God works often is he lines up things very helpfully and, and not just kind of neatly in a nice little bow and ribbon on top. But he's lined up this really deep, important passage of what it means to follow Christ. So I hope that you see there's some direct overlap, there's some direct correlation in what Advent season means as we prepare for the coming of Christ and what that means for following Christ after that. If I can boil all that down, my sermon in a sentence is that the gospel message, the good news of Jesus as our Savior, that he comes as a life to be lived, to give us new life in him, and that following in that path, following the footsteps of Christ, means training. It means discipleship, even if it also means suffering. That's a big sentence but it's the gospel. So I want to try to unpack this in four parts from this passage. First, the gospel discipleship. Second, gospel living. Then, gospel faith. 
And finally, gospel, uh, sorry, gospel wisdom. First off, he starts right in verse 10, and he's got a list of you, however, have followed, and he gives us a number of different things that he's, he's shown Timothy, he's lived with Timothy, he's ministered in Ephesus specifically with Timothy for years. So none of these things are new for Timothy. Timothy's not reading this list going, oh yeah, I never thought of that. He's, he's seen that, he's lived it. But Paul wants to anchor this down. And what he is doing is contrasting what has come many times before. He's bringing this up in kind of a cycle fashion. You understand this. You see this in wrong, unhelpful ways, false teachers in the world. And he does that. He continues to do that. As he says in verse 10, you, however, it's this simple Greek phrase that he repeats later down in verse 14. So we're going to see there's those two moments when he's comparing from something else the false teachers to you, Timothy, and by extension, all of the followers of Christ. What he's giving Timothy, though, is this beautiful pattern, this gospel pattern, this way of taking the truths of the gospel and making them real in your own life. That is exactly what the pattern of the incarnation does for us. So Paul's even not the first one to come up with this. Thankfully, there's not, new, there's not much new that Paul is coming up with. He's just taking what he's learned from Christ and he's living it out. And then he's passing that along, training, teaching, discipling, showing others how to follow that as well. That's the model of incarnation. And what Paul says here is, take my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, all three things, exact derivatives of what he's received from Christ himself, take them and live them out as the way of the gospel. But let's unpack that just a little bit. What is Paul's teaching? Clearly, it's, it's the message that he received personally direct revelation from Christ himself, the way of grace, the way of reconciliation, the way of living rightly with God the Father, which directly overlaps with what he says is my conduct, his, his way of life is another way to phrase that. What he knows is true shapes what he does, how he lives. And that brings us into the third part there, the, his aim in life, his purpose in life, what all of his life is about. We know where Paul's going not necessarily physically, the next stop on his journey, we know exactly what he's on the planet to do. And that is to preach Christ where he is not known. And he does that. We even saw a couple weeks ago when, when Robert reminded us that he's in chains. And even that can't hinder him because that was how God used Paul to get even to a place in the, the inner circle of Caesar's own household to preach the gospel, where it had not been known. All of this is in comparison of the false teachers. Remember back in the first part of chapter 3? They're the, the false teachers that don't have the right content of their message. They're teaching false things. They have a wrong conduct, a wrong way 
of life. Their living doesn't match even what they teach. And all of that is aimed in the wrong purpose. It's, it's heading in the wrong direction. They're wrong on content, and they're miles away on their conduct. And they're unwilling to suffer for any of it. They're, they're even faking it and appearing godly. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 5, they have appearance of godliness, but it comes to nothing. This anchors down in exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew 16, verse 24. He says, if anyone would come after me, if you want to follow after Christ, if you want to pursue him as a disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the content. That's the way. And that's the purpose. That as we follow in Christ's life, we understand what he's teaching we aim for the way that he's going. We aim to sacrificially, selfishly, selflessly serve others so that the purpose of the gospel may be expanded. All this is boiling down to what, means, what, what I mean by gospel discipleship, that we continued in what we have seen Paul do, heard him teach, and the purpose that he gets there. All of this could be broken down into the what, the why, and the how. What does he mean? Focus on the gospel. Why are we doing that? What's the purpose for that? To expand that in our own hearts, in our own lives, to all the ends of the earth. And how do we do that? By the, the way of life that we live. So, those are the first three. The next three, he gets to his faith, his patience, and his love. This is, again purely gracious gifts of the Father, to give them to Paul. And he, he means this to deepen what Timothy knows about Paul. He knows his faith has been tested. He knows the object of Paul's faith is strong because it's in Jesus. He knows he's been patient through years and years of not just challenges and hurdles, but absolute roadblocks and shipwrecks and suffering and he knows the love that Paul shows for everyone that he extends that all over the place what Paul's getting to is is the fruit of the spirit he wants Timothy to continue to to exhibit to have evidence of the fruit of the spirit at work in his life that's the very first thing he anchors in his first letter in 1 Timothy 1.5. If I can get there briefly. The very first thing right out of the gate, he says, the aim of our charge is this. Here's what I want you to get out of this whole letter, Timothy. It's this. It's love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Drive that home in your heart, Timothy. Drive it home and anchor it there. And this is the exact phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Your ESV will say, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Great way to say it. Either way, we're following somebody else who's following somebody else. And they're following Christ. 
So the degree to which the amount that we see that love, that steadfastness, that faith in others, that's where we need to follow. That's where we need to be anchored. The next three, the steadfastness, the persecutions, the sufferings. Paul's trying to get really real with Timothy. They say this isn't some pie-in-the-sky idea. This isn't just a nice notion that was kind of wrapped in a Hallmark card and sent to you. This is life that's lived out in some really hard ways. Right? It's his faith showing that it's objectively true. No matter what I go through, Timothy, you know this is true, and you know it's real, and you know it's worth living and putting your whole life into. Specifically, maybe this will be a good afternoon project for y'all, go back to Acts 13 and 14. This is when Paul is on his missionary journey. He first comes to this region that Timothy lives in. He mentions it there when he talks about I've come to you. You've seen the sufferings that have happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. He's not just kind of picking random places out in here. You heard the rumors, right, Timothy? That's not what he's doing. Those are the three towns, the two leading up to the town, and the third is that Lystra is the town that Timothy grew up in. Go back and read Acts 13 and 14 and see what happened there. He comes into a synagogue in Acts 13, he preaches this beautiful message of the Old Testament promises that a Messiah would come and what that looks like. And the people's response is overwhelming joy or overwhelming anger. And they kick him out. And he's like, I'll deal with that. I'll leave the synagogue. I'll preach to the Gentiles. They'll love hearing this message. It's for them as well. And he goes to the next town. And the rabble-rousers from the first, I don't know if you get that word. It's like the hoodlums, the gangs, the guys that aren't that all, all that excited, right? They come from the first town, they show up at the second town, and they don't want him to get any further in his message. So much so that by the time he gets to Lystra, he has been beaten, stoned, and left for dead. Those are the persecutions and sufferings that the steadfastness of the Lord is putting on display in Paul's life. So when Paul mentions that in, in this letter to Timothy, he's not talking about some random examples. He's talking about those things that specifically impacted Timothy. So much so the next time he comes around, he mentions that this, this new disciple who has, has grown in his faith, this Timothy guy, Paul wants him to go with him on the next journey. He's seen that it's real. Now, if we want to make sure that these phrases aren't just Paul going down a list of his own ego trips, like you've seen all the wonderful things I've done, look at me. Let me just make a quick distinction in the Greek and English here, just to maybe help you push this away from Paul as the centerpiece. He's not shining the spotlight on himself. In Greek... The little phrase, you have followed, there's the possessive pronoun, mine or my, and then there's a list of all of these things. What, why I mention that, it, what's that helpful in saying to us? He's saying, you followed mine, the teachings, the conduct, the aim in life, the faith, the patience, the love, the steadfastness, the persecutions. What does that do? I don't hang too much on that 
because it's a little teeny word in a different order that we use in English. But what I think that helps to emphasize is Paul saying, there's objective truth that's beyond anything that I've done. This is not the Paul on the weekend show. This is the Lord of the universe at work. And he's at work whether he uses me or not. But he's chosen for some crazy reason to use me. He's given and taught me something so you've seen that in my life. That's a whole different thing. That's why by the time he can say in the end of verse 11, these persecutions I have endured, he's not talking like he's some great endurance champion. He's talking simply that the Lord has been gracious to him to allow him to endure so that somebody else can say, wow, that teaching that's different than I've heard anywhere else. That's something that somebody's going to endure that for and then come back even bigger and better the, after you got left for dead. That's something different. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. So that phrase, the end of verse 11, yet from them all the Lord rescued me I want to highlight that because that as well, I think, is really significant. The way that Paul is not saying, I got teleported out of all these bad situations. Thank goodness I didn't have to go through that. Right? Or, wow, it could have been much worse there. I think, again, the Greek preposition here is a little more helpful than we could do in English. It doesn't just mean he hit the escape button and then poof, everything vanished and he's okay. God delivered him out of them. He was clearly in the midst of them. He was clearly being harassed and beaten, uh, abused, and even had stones being thrown at his head. God didn't put up a force field and say, no, you're good, I got this. God delivered him out of those things. This is the way God works. He delivers us out from things through them, just like the redemption through the flood, the, the deliverance through the parted Red Sea, coming through the Jordan on dry ground for the Israelites, the people through the exile. And for us today, I hope you see God is at work delivering you through your sin struggles, through those things that just wrap your whole brain, heart, mind, life around anything sinful, whether it's addictions, uh, messes at work, job loss, the hurt of divorce and relational brokenness, God is at work delivering through those. He's working through that. From them, the Lord will rescue you. Indeed, he goes on to say, all who desire to live a godly life, in verse 12, will be persecuted. My second point then is, is gospel living. What does that look like? If we, if we truly want to focus and pursue gospel discipleship, it's going to mean living a different way. Here's what Paul says. If you want to desire, if you have this inkling in your heart, if you desire to live this way, to follow a life of Christ, here's what it looks like. To live a godly life is to live in Christ Jesus. Please hear this. There is no godliness outside of Christ. That is 
something that simply doesn't exist. Yeah, we can have lots of good things. Yeah, we can try to be good people. None of that's godly unless you're in Christ. But here's the good news. That if you believe in Christ, your life is actually hidden in Christ. You're, you're united with Christ. You're in Christ. That's who you are. And then your life, your godliness, your, your way of living comes out of that. In Colossians 3.3, Paul uses that exact phrase that you're hidden in Christ. And that allows you to demonstrate faith, patience, and love, even steadfastness in the midst of suffering, that kind of deep and anchored love that governs all others. One author, you've sure, I'm sure you've heard of him, Jerry Bridges, says this about godliness, that it's built on the foundation of God-centeredness. It's a devotion to God. In other words, a devotion is an active pursuit of this person, wanting to know not more about God, but know God in relationship, being wholeheartedly, whole life devoted to God and what he's about. Now, as it happens, we're at the end of the year, and I wouldn't be a helpful person if I were to just kind of leave it there without suggesting some really practical, helpful ways that this could look in the New Year's. If you don't have something that you're intentionally, actively doing to devote all of your life, but just start small, some part of your life to God, consider doing that. There's lots of resources out there. I don't want to hand you a book or a pamphlet and say, this will help solve all your New Year's resolutions, because I don't know if that's true. But I do know that just looking around this room, there are a lot of people with a lot of really good, healthy habits where they intentionally devote some aspect, some time, some part of their life to God, find them. Ask people after the service, hey, what are you starting in the new year? How are you trying to devote this other part of life to God? What else are you doing? Not maybe more time, but another helpful way to see God at work in this part of life. Yes, there are many options. There's Bible reading plans in every different uh, tact and approach to Old and New Testament. I would love to introduce you to some of those. I'm not saying those aren't helpful. But have somebody that you can walk alongside that with, that you can follow in that active devotion to God. All of that is for the purpose. Here, what Paul says in Colossians 3, 12 to 14. He says, all of that, the, the fact that you're hidden in Christ is so that you can put on then, like a, a nice warm jacket on a cold morning, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And here's the point of why I, why I included this verse. Above all of those fruit of the Spirit, he says, put on this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony or in completeness. Godly living means putting on above everything else. It means putting on love, love of God and love of neighbor. 
Now, just to make a helpful comparison at this word level, if you notice that word that he says there, in English it's love, all the other places he uses love. But in Greek, there's a bunch of different options they had to use love. The reason I want to bring this out is because Paul is calling us to a different kind of love. And that kind of love, that godly love, it's the Greek word agape or agape love, is the primary, it's the governing love, it's the one that makes all the other ways that we love, all the other loves, come in their right order to the right degree. Just to see this up close and real, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 1, where he says in verse 2, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and they, later on, they will not love good, but they will be lovers of pleasure, in verse 4, rather than lovers of God. Five times early on in chapter 3, the first couple of verses, he uses a different word for love, philos or philia. It's a different kind of love than he's called us to here. When Paul says, you need to follow my faith, my patience, my love, he's not using philia anymore. That misguided love, love of self, love of pleasure, love of money, any other love rather than love of God, here he says, follow my agape. Follow the love that God has given me and that I want to love God well with so that I can love others well. He's saying, in other words, you have to know the love of God first so that you can know any other loves to the right degree in the right direction. If you get that right, loving God as your primary love, the one that he says binds everything together in perfect harmony, perfect completeness, all the others will be ordered well. So godly living means living, loving lives. Loving God first and loving others well. And that comes through what we learn, what we love, and what we do. If I could quote another commentator who has a little bit longer section here, so bear with me a second. I hope this helps us bridge this gap between what Paul is encouraging us and where he's going with those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Commentator Robert Yarborough, it's a good Scottish name. He writes that Paul writes of wanting to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. The words can be mouthed emptily with, to describe status quo churchianity. I think he made up that word, but you get it. They can use, be used to describe that with little real commitment and no risk of persecution. You can love ever so much, but not worry that it's going to actually cause any ripples. But the will to live godly lives in Christ Jesus bespeaks a nothing-held-back commitment to be as true to Christ as the cost may require in the course of expanding and deepening commitment to Him. I need to take a breath after that. It bespeaks a nothing-held-back commitment. He goes on to say, it is unlikely that there is any setting in the world today where such discipleship commitment will not result in social disapproval, perhaps family friction, and quite possibly painful complications involving matters like relationships, career opportunities, 
professional prospects, financial fortunes, and increasingly, criminal prosecutions. He wrote this a few years ago. And he's not trying to be prophetic. He's not even trying to be wearisome, fearful, and worrisome for us. He's trying to say that this is how good the commitment, the all-in commitment to our Lord and Savior can be, regardless of the, the cost that will come. Here, Paul in verse 12 had said, indeed, it's like saying, absolutely, take this to the bank, Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Yes, it comes in different varieties at different times to different degrees. But it comes. If I can just highlight a couple of the ways that I think we miss this. One of them is we don't necessarily understand what persecution or suffering can look like. I think it's really healthy to take a global perspective to see what it looks like in places like China or in Ukraine, in Nigeria or in Iran. But it also means taking a, a look at what the, the things that we will trade in our culture rather than be persecuted, what those things are. Some of this, I think, is what we, we sell out. We sell too short the idea of what it means to have a, an anchored, a nothing-held-back commitment. Well, I'll give this much where it's safe or where I can virtue signal over here, but if you really want me to toe the line on this, eh, I don't know. Or, in some ways, I think that we just think that this, this wrong idea, this wrong phrase that kind of creeps into our thinking and that maybe takes over that you've heard this, I've heard it, maybe we've said it, God can never, or he, he will never give you more than you can handle. I think Paul would l listen to that verse and, or that phrase and kind of smirk. He can, he'll never give you more than you can handle? You, you mean like the time I was in prison? And like, I was singing songs of worship and the, the chains fell off my hands and the guards came in and thought that I was freed and they were going to kill themselves in Philippi, right, Acts 16. Or you mean the time that I was being stoned with stones and I was like left for dead? I don't know if I could handle that. Like that time? The time that I was mocked, abused, whipped, beaten, outcast, Take a look at what he shows us in the letter of Corinthians. He gives us plenty of examples. In other words, suffering will come and God will often give us more than we can handle so that we can show our commitment, our devotion, our primary love for him no matter what it costs. But he will never leave us with that situation. And I want to come full circle as we get to see what this looks like in the world. But just for right now, remember that Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. Don't let it surprise you. Don't let it catch you off guard. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Not I have barely endured 
not I have paved a nice path so it'll be smooth and straight and even for you. Your trouble will feel overwhelming, but Jesus himself has overcome any and all troubles that we will have. So Paul goes on in verse 13. He says, you will be persecuted while evil people and imposters, those fakers, he's referencing specifically back to uh, verse 8 in chapter 3 where he's used Janus and Jambres as the examples. They were faking it. They were imposturing Aaron and Moses, trying to be like them, you know, act all magician-y like and do the things that he was doing. And Paul says they will go from bad to worse. They'll progress on in their fakeness, being deceived and deceiving others. That will continue. You'll see it and it will affect you. It will cause more suffering, more persecution, harder hearts because that over there or this idea over there or this version of truth over there is easier to listen. It's softer on our ears. That's where Paul's going to go later on in chapter 4. He's going to call those, those people are, are so itching in their ears, they want to hear easier, softer, gentler, kinder messages. They'll go from bad to worse, he says. But don't follow them. Don't progress on that path. And so he anchors again, once again, that phrase, you, however, or but as for you, in verse 14. Don't progress on in getting worse. Don't change your message. Don't adjust your primary focus and your ultimate loves. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. So the third point is the gospel faith that he gives us. He says, but as for you, verse 14, continue in what you have, what you have learned and have firmly believed. That faith, that firm belief, it's what you're fully convinced of. How absolutely certain you are that you're there. The other ways that the New Testament talks about this is, is abiding, remaining, standing firm, being steadfast. And here, Paul isn't just giving him a, a nice little nugget, some little trinket, like a rabbit's foot to carry around, like this will do wonders for you. He says, follow, continue, stay steadfast in this pattern, in teaching, in conduct, in your purpose in life so that everything that you know continues to grow. The same pattern, the, the repent and believe and obey, continue on in that. And he's using this word to be convinced of something, to really, really, really be steadfast and firmly hold to that belief that compares to those false teachers in, earlier in chapter 3, verse 7, where they, they always learn, but never are able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What's the difference between learning and helping that anchor your faith to be more firmly convinced and learning and just kind of learning and learning and learning and it doesn't actually help you arrive anywhere? What's the difference? Do you trust its source? Do you see that learning lived out in real life? Does it make an ounce of difference in anything, but especially in suffering? I think Paul knows exactly what makes the difference because he gives it to us. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. What's going to make the difference for you, Timothy? The very next phrase, knowing from whom you've learned it. 
He moves on. And he uses a plural version of whom. We don't have that in English. We have you and y'all, right? He doesn't have a plural version to give us in English. But in Greek, it's, it's knowing from whom, plural, multiple people. And specifically, he's not just, again, talking about himself. Knowing me, Timothy, you've known I've done it. He's talking about multiple people. At the very minimum, he means Lois and Eunice, Timothy's mother and grandmother. You know their life, Timothy. You've seen them weep over your faith, Timothy. You know how persevering they are, Timothy. You cannot take the firmness of their belief and think it can't also be the same for you because it didn't start or originate with them. It's not something they just conjured up on the weekend to make them feel better about themselves. It's a deeply held, objectively true faith that then they get to see in their daily lives. It's their parents. It's their grandparents. It's those personal examples that help make it real. Now I want to qualify that a little bit and give us some historic examples. It's not real just because we see it in the lives of others. Don't relativize this and say, well, I better see it in somebody else's life or else I don't know if I can believe it truly for myself. That's not what Paul's saying. He says you learned it and you firmly believed it knowing the people that you believe that, your parents, your grandparents, your, your other elders, the people around you in this community, they help to build that trust that you can live all these other seasons and stages of life just as firmly as where you are now, young Timothy. But look at personal examples. Go to your library, look online, find some good, solid, historic biographies of men and women in the faith. Over this holiday season, talk to your parents and your grandparents. Ask them a question. When you were young, what was hard? How did you see God at work to convince you? Ask those questions. Knowing from whom you have learned and been firmly able to believe. I would strongly suggest looking at some missionaries from Elizabeth Elliot to uh, John Murray, uh, John Patton. He went to the, the little islands in the Hebrides. I have some of these on my bookshelf. I would love to hand them at you. Not hand, like at you, but gently pass them in your hand. Or look at a modern day example of living a hard life with very anchored firm faith. Uh, read any of the books by Joni Erickson Tata. You, you can almost hear the smile in her words and the weeping at the same time of how good and hard a life of faith can be. And in our church, here in this community, this is why we are moving back towards what we have called life-on-life life missional discipleship. The way that you see and have firmly believed what has been passed down through generations is by getting to live it alongside of another person, getting to see what is taught in Scripture, 
getting to understand the joys and the challenges and all of those pieces. This is why we have word-equipped ministries in our church, that we focus on Scripture and have that saturate what we do. This is why we have Sunday schools and Bible studies and men's and women's groups, intergenerational things from prime timers all the way down to choir. We want to, to, to give you opportunities that you can actively provide and see your faith in real ways that you can connect with other believers and say that's how the word of God gets lived out in this way. As our commentator said, the goal of gospel instruction is not merely information, but real life assurance. Getting to see how true it really is in all the aspects of life, that it really matters, it's really true, and it's really that good. But Paul doesn't end there. He goes on in verse 15, and this is our last point, gospel wisdom. He says, and from how, how from childhood, Timothy, you, you've, since you've been a young boy, since you could remember any of this, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, the acquainted word does not mean that you, yeah, you saw that book up on your shelf, you watched all the VeggieTales videos, you're good. It's not what he's mentioning. He means you've known, you've had them taught to you. It's been a part of the daily rhythm of life. You've heard it taught and you've seen it lived out so that you can see what it means for being wise for salvation. Right here, I just want to pause and ask, especially for young people that are still in the room, how much do you take advantage of that? You know how much your brains are sponges? in a good way. They soak up everything. You can look at a memory verse and, and have it memorized in like milliseconds. I don't know how you do that. But do that more. Ask for more of that. See, hey, mom, hey, dad, hey, Uncle Joe, hey, whoever that we're sitting around the, the Christmas table with, how have you seen God at work this last year? Wow. Wow. That would be an awesome question. Actively pursue those things. Continue to acquaint yourselves with the sacred writings. And I apologize if I am only aiming this for the young because there is never a time when this becomes something we don't need to do. There's never an age where we can say, yep, good, know it, acquainted fully, there's always more that we can know. There's always more that we can learn. And there's always more that we can apply and enjoy. We have incredible access to God's word, to those sacred writings that Paul encourages Timothy here. We have incredible access. We have incredible wisdom in this room. Not just book learning but some really good gospel street smarts as well. What does this mean for marriage? What does this mean for relationship? What does this mean for working, for managing, for leading, for getting promoted when there's kind of ethical gray areas? What does this mean for leading in my neighborhood, in my community, for helping others see there's a better way, for forming our whole worldview 
around the lordship of Christ. What does that mean there? Incredible ways that we can see how this works in all of life. But please do not miss that Paul's anchoring all of this from the very first thing. You follow my teaching, Timothy, all the way down to you've been acquainted with sacred writings. He's anchoring anything and everything good that I know, Timothy, that you need to learn. It comes down to it starts and it continues with you understanding Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired those words. The Holy Spirit will also help us interpret those words. Yes, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, but we have to. We must be in God's Word. So part of this Paul is saying, you can trust it. You see the people that have trusted it in their past. It has and will never let you down. You've seen it in my life, Timothy. But he's also saying it's a requirement. It's the only way for salvation. It is able to make you wise for salvation. It is necessary for your salvation, Timothy. Not just for the one time that you came to believe, you prayed the prayer, whatever you did. But all of your life of salvation, it is necessary. Paul goes out of his way to make sure that we understand there is an exclusive source of the gospel. There's only one way to know Jesus as he lived and died as one of us. That he rose from the dead for new life. That he's the only way to God the Father. This is exactly what Peter cries out to Jesus in John 6, 68. Where else would we go, Lord? Who else has the message of salvation? You are the only one that has the word of life. And then we heard Peter say this again in Acts 4, 12. There is no name under heaven by which men are, must be saved than Jesus Christ. He and he alone is the Savior. And the Word and the Word alone is the necessary means that God has given us. It's where we need to go to understand that. Because if we don't, we're saying we might believe in some way, some truth, and some life, but that could be your way, your truth, and your life if we're not anchored to what is true. Or we have some other version. Yeah, I, I love Jesus. He's just, he's just this great leader. He's just a such a wise teacher. He's, he's so loving. That's not the Savior that is revealed in Scripture. Because Scripture is necessary, because it's the way that we are saved, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, it's also sufficient now, those might be fancy philosophical terms for us. Let me just unpack those in two seconds and then wrap up. It's sufficient and necessary like air is needed for life. But there's lots of air in this room. If I'm not deeply inhaling that into my lungs, I've seen and believed in something very necessary for sustaining life. I haven't done one bit to actually take it in doing a lot of hand gestures, let me just give you a sound. If you walk through life, 
if you think that you're going to hike a mountain breathing like this, you're out of your mind. Please don't try that, kids. If I go on a hike, if I go on a run, and granted it's not that fast, but still I'm winded, and I'm not deeply inhaling all the way down to my diaphragm, sucking in as much life-giving oxygen as I can possibly get, I'm going to pass out. And it's not pretty. Y'all, we know, if we took a poll, we'd say, yes, I need to read God's word. Please, in the new year, please, in this Christmas, come to the scripture as it's necessary and sufficient. It's air that we must breathe, that we must deeply breathe in. Not little proof texts here and there that we laminate on our fridge. That's fine and all. But I need to deeply breathe that in because Paul says the last phrase, those sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This little word, that they are able, it's not like they're barely going to eke you through. This word able means that they're fully capable. They have all, mysteriously so, all of the power of God working through these words, through this scripture. Where am I getting that crazy idea from? Back up in verse 5 of chapter 3. He mentions, you remember those uh, false teachers that had the appearance of godliness, but denied its what? Its ability. It's the same exact Greek word behind that. They deny its power. That Paul says here, it's able, it's powerful. The same exact Greek word is ability. The scriptures have the power to make you wise for salvation. Not just wise enough, not just smart enough, but to anchor what you have learned and to allow it to be convincing so that you can firmly believe. That ability, the God-given power, the Holy Spirit power at work through His Word is going to ignite your hearts in joy, in service, in the wonder of the gospel as it deepens in your heart and just explodes through your life in really good exploding ways. So that when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9.8, I want this to be the, the ending piece, that God is able, he's powerful to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, everything you need in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's using all, every, all, all over the place. Five times in that short little verse, he uses it to anchor the fact that God's sufficiency through the means of his word, is fully able, it's fully powerful to do the work that he has purposed in your life. 
So let me help us apply this. What do I need? What areas do I think would be enough for me that would make my life complete? Maybe that's a really good time of year this Christmas to take a look at if I got that for a present, if I could have this in the new year, would that mean life was good? It, would I be happy then? Would it be sufficient for life? And that make, let's make that personal. Who do I follow that I think has that? What areas do I try to emulate them, try to be like them, try to be, see them as a model? Where do we look for those people, whether they're heroes or influencers or the famous ones, the successful ones, the celebrities that we try to follow? What are we following about those individuals? Or is it like Paul said, you have followed mine in the teaching, the conduct, the aim in life, the faith, patience, love, steadfastness, even and especially when it leads to persecution. Or let me ask this as another commentator asks, which is more encouraging for you? Finding the truth or finding a person that is a good example or knowing that the Holy Spirit empowers you to follow the truth or that good example? Which one are we resting in? And finally, Am I taking advantage of all the means of grace, of actively studying, being devoted to God and his words, pursuing real-life discipleship, finding ways to get to the things that we offer, the Sunday schools, the small groups, the Bible studies, youth, children's ministry, HG, trail life, prime timers, looking into what evangelism and missions look like here, aiming to serve and helping my family worship and leading that in our homes? And am I doing that firmly convinced that God is able to make all grace abound to you? All grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, He may help you. He may encourage you. He may make you able to abound in every good work. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, the way that you unpack your scripture, the way that you use individuals throughout history, Paul and Timothy and Peter and Eunice and Lois, missionaries around the globe and people that we know here in our own congregation, the way that you use your people shows us the goodness of firmly believing in Christ and knowing him for all of life. Help us now. Help us as we go into this last week before Christmas to see you high and lifted up, to know that when you came to earth as a baby, to live and die and be raised from the dead, that that doesn't just give us a model. It gives us everything we need for salvation. Help us then to be anchored in your word, to see that put on display. And help us through the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.